0: On the 17th of January 1992, a typically cold Beijing morning, Deng Xiaoping's train sets off southward from platform number one of the capital's main railway station. Over the course of an overnight 1,200-kilometre journey, the diesel train rumbles across the North China Plain and the provinces of Hebei and Henan. It crosses the Yellow River on a line originally built in the very early 20th century by foreign investors, the ruling Qing dynasty then being too short on money to pay for it themselves. The train does not stop on its way. Finally, at 10.31am on the 18th of January, Deng's train crosses the broad Yangtze River and pulls into platform number one of Wuchang railway station in the city of Wuhan. The morning is bright and sunny. Deng wears a smart peaked grey cap. Not a Mao cap, but something far less utilitarian. Western even. A darker grey overcoat and a cream scarf. The day is brisk, but already notably warmer than the Beijing they left the previous day. His daughter accompanies him on the platform; she in an identical cream scarf and bright red overcoat. The men who meet them, most notably Hubei Party Secretary Guan Guangfu, and Governor Guo Yan, are far more soberly dressed: white shirts and black jumpers. cheap-looking winter jackets. We will walk a little and talk a little, Dung tells the dignitaries awaiting him at the platform. The platform is only about 500 metres long. They will walk its length four times, stopping periodically, a photographer walking ahead to capture the conversation. Dung rails to the officials against empty talk, saying that these days there is too much bureaucracy, too many meetings, reports which are too long, Speeches which are too long. He cites Mao and his aversion to long meetings and talks about how, when asked to draft a speech for Zhou Enlai at the Fourth National People's Congress, he had managed to keep it under 5,000 characters, but still it remained effective. He criticises those on the left of the party, adherents to the old planned economy, and says that development is now the top priority. Not to pursue reform and opening, develop the economy. And improve people's lives is, he says, the road to ruin. Time passes quickly and before they know it nearly half an hour has elapsed. Deng boards the train once more saying a hurried farewell to the beaming party officials. For all the brevity of the stop, Deng's message to those officials at Wuhan is the same that he will reiterate for the next four weeks of his travels. At 11.02 a.m. the train pulls away from the station, heading south once more the three party cadres who had spoken with him retire into a room in the station to record Deng's words. The transcript will be sent back to the officials in Beijing. The train was set for another overnight journey, only pausing briefly at Changsha railway station in Mao's home province of Hunan. Aside from that, it will be a slow 22 hours to the southern city of Shenzhen. This is the Southern Tour podcast and I'm your host Jonathan Chatwin. For today's episode we welcome Chris Courtney to talk about the city of Wuhan and its role in China's modern history. Chris is a social and environmental historian of modern China. His research focuses upon the city of Wuhan and its rural hinterland, a region where he lived and conducted research for over five years. His monograph, entitled The Nature of Disaster in China, was the first major study of the 1931 Central China Flood a largely forgotten catastrophe that killed in excess of two million people. His current research focuses on the problem of heat in modern Chinese cities, exploring how emergent technologies such as ice factories, electric fans and air conditioning transformed the cultural and social landscape of Wuhan. So welcome, Chris, first of all. Thank you. I thought we'd start by talking a bit about your personal relationship with the city. You lived there for a, a number of years and I know you return still to, to do research. When was your first encounter with the city? So I,
1: I moved there uh, in 2004 to be an English teacher, which I think is a fairly familiar trajectory for kind of this generation of scholars uh, from Britain who were studying China. So I, I moved there in 2004, worked there for a few years as an English teacher, and I'd kind of work and then travel around China on the money that I'd, I'd earned. And then I went back to Manchester to do my um, master's and PhD, but I'd continue to go back. I went back to Wuhan University to study Chinese, and then I did my PhD research there. And Along the way, I got married to somebody from the city, and my wife had a... We had a kid when I was doing my PhD and my daughter was born in the Chieho UN, the, the the hospital that was started by Griffith John of the London Missionary Society in the eighteen sixties. So I've got this a uh, kind of deep personal connection with the with the city and I've got a lot lot of affection for the city and its people.
0: And it's as you say in the book, it's one of those cities that if you read um the modern history of china you keep coming across it's had a sort of pivotal role at certain key moments in in chinese history Uh, you you write in the book that you know historians often having observed these events turn back to more familiar locales like beijing and shanghai but those that linger a little longer soon find themselves seduced by a fascinating and rich urban culture and what made it or what makes it such a fascinating and, and rich place for you
1: I mean, in terms of the contemporary culture, I just find it a very interesting place to live. Because it's kind of this combination, it has all of the stuff that you would associate with kind of a big, modern Chinese city. It's got the big, shiny buildings and the hustle and bustle of a major city. But at the same time, it still does have, or it did have until very recently, this kind of this, this street life that's still very... Uh, lively and you can still sit out and drink beer and eat barbecue until five o'clock in the morning in the way that you can in some other chinese cities but in some other kind of big cities that kind of culture is disappearing and in terms of so kind of personally that's kind of why well, it's a nice place to kind of live and research but in terms of why is it a good place to to study historically i mean as you as you said so many of the major events of the 20th century and and before happened in, in Wuhan yeah yeah it's I think, relatively understudied. I mean, Wuhan mm-hmm. was the kind of provisional capital of China twice in the 20th century. It didn't last very long either time. But mm-hmm. it, and, of course, the Xinhai Revolution, the kind of fall of the Qing dynasty, started there. So, mm-hmm. so many interesting things about the city. I'm kind of always surprised
0: that more people don't pay more attention to it, or didn't until recently. And it's always been an important hub, hasn't it, in terms of transportation and um, logistics, moving people and things around China?
1: Yeah, so... I mean obviously before we have railways rivers are the major way that you would negotiate the terrain of china kind of major conduits of transportation and trade and, and wuhan or the kind of three there are three historic cities that make up wuhan so hanko hanyang wuchang and they're kind of clustered around the confluence of this of the yangtze and river which is a really kind of fortuitous spot in this river network because you're kind of connected to the, the north you're connected to east west routes and uh, shortly upstream as well, you can kind of get to the, to the southern route. So it's kind of really a prime spot, a prime bit of real estate. And for that reason, it becomes, as you, as you say, this kind of major transportation hub. And there's been cities there for, for thousands of years, but particularly in the second millennium, they really begin to flourish. And in, in the Ming Dynasty, the new city of Hanko is formed because the rivers change shape. And Hanko becomes, during the kind of latter half of the second millennium, one of the biggest cities in
0: the world. And you still see some of the the legacy of of that, don't you, in the architecture in it is. I was actually amazed how many of the old buildings from that sort of late 19th century era are still standing, and there's a sort of miniature... Bund from, uh, our listeners may be familiar with you know the, the Shanghai Bund and upstream what is it six hundred miles up the Yangtze Hankou is a very similar stretch of of architecture from that era.
1: I mean I, I'm a Wuhanophile, so I would say that the Wuhan one is more interesting than the Shanghai one <laughs> because um, <laughs> uh, of course you have the the international and the French concessions in Shanghai, but if you look at the kind of concessionary area, so so Hanko becomes a treaty port in kind of the kind of latter half of the, the 19th century, a little bit after Shanghai. But, so you have kind of five concessions there. You've got a French, British, German, Russian, and Japanese concession, which is quite different from Shanghai. So they're all kind of in this line. So what you get is this kind of little mini version of each of these countries and their architecture. Some of which survive, some of which has been destroyed, all lined up against one another. So you have this kind of, you can still go there and see this kind of model German housing, and you go around mm-hmm. the corner and you have the kind of a, a, a street that looks like some sort of Parisian street organization. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating place. And of course, a lot of British connection with the city as well. So kind of cosmopolitan cosmopolitan city in the in the late 19th century and this kind of British connection doesn 't just necessarily mean British in the way we think about it now it means that there were during that period a large number of Indian people living there there was Sikh Gurdwara there was also kind of temples from Burmese people it was a, it was a really fascinating vibrant place during the late 19th
0: century and early 20th century and one of the Big moments. You, you mentioned the Xinhai Revolution starting uh, in Wuhan. And then during the nationalist period, as the Japanese invade, the actually the national capital moves upriver to Wuhan and it's there for what about seven or eight months is it in 1938?
1: In yeah, so I mean, first of all, in 1927, it becomes a kind of provisional capital of nationalist China of kind of one faction of the Kuomintang during their kind of Northern Expedition. And so there's this kind of factional battle between Wuhan and Nanjing. So you have this, this, this moment where Wuhan looks like it might become the capital then. And then again, in 1938, as you suggest, after the, the Japanese invade Nanjing, the capital moves up to Wuhan provisionally. And It's a really kind of flourishing moment in in the kind of resistance against the Japanese invasion. It's kind of one of these rare moments during modern Chinese history where the the Kuomintang and the the Communist Party managed to get along a little bit. And there's this kind of... Wuhan becomes a kind of global capital of anti-fascism for a brief moment. It's kind of after the fall of Madrid, it's seen as the kind of forefront. And you have all sorts of people going there. Christopher Isherwood goes there. Orden uh, yeah. goes there with him, and all these photographers and and kind of uh, people who've been making all these cultural productions during the Spanish Civil War, they go to Wuhan to see this kind of front line in the fight against fascism.
0: Yeah, and Orden and, and Isherwood, they the book Journey to a War, which they write afterwards, it does talk about that the way that the eyes of the world have moved to Wuhan for this for this brief period of time, and I suppose in many ways that was the last time that the city had a a global prominence until until twenty twenty, when it's become a city that, you know, I was researching it at the tail end of last year and and doing some writing about it and, you know, my my family and friends who I talk about what I was doing had no idea where it they never heard of it. And of course now everybody has heard of it. And I wondered how that felt after spending so many years of your life researching and working on the city that suddenly now everybody has an opinion on it, everybody thinks they know something about it.
1: Well, I, I suppose the, the glib answer would be be careful what you wish for, right? So I spend a <laughs> I spend a long time trying to convince people that Wuhan's this really important global city and yep. then suddenly everybody is aware of this city's existence, but it's for it's for all the wrong reasons. Hmm. Probably the the kind of less facetious answer would be that for kind of me and my family and much more so for uh, other people, that early 2020 was a really disturbing time. Because I think one of the things I think people have forgotten is that at the very beginning, in January, people had no idea how lethal coronavirus was. So all these Mm. people in Wuhan were facing it. They didn't know any of the kind of small reassurances that we've had, the fact that kind of the vast majority of people survived, the fact that it doesn't necessarily affect children so badly. People in Mm. Wuhan didn't know that. And so they were kind of leading in this terrifying epidemic that for all they knew initially it could be as lethal as ebola and they're Mm. having to cope with all of this and at the same time they instantly become this kind of global pariah city with all this kind of wave of misinformation coming out about the way they live their lives and the way they eat their food Mm. Mm. and so as you suggest for me it was this was kind of a bizarre phase just kind of as somebody who's lived and researched a city but for people from Wuhan. All people from East Asia in, in kind of Europe and America faced this course of this backlash of horrible racism targeting them. But for for people from Wuhan in particular, they faced this racism outside China. They also faced a degree of discrimination within China. Mm. Uh, kind of regional discrimination within China. All the while they're having to kind of worry about what's happening with all their friends and family back home. So it was a it was a disturbing
0: time it still is a disturbing time but that that period in particular was very disturbing it's interesting thinking about it in the context of of your book you know which is titled the nature of disaster in china and and one of the things that it does in its early sections is spell out how many times Wuhan has faced uh, a different sort of disaster, which is, which is flooding. And as you say, it, it sits on the intersection of, of two rivers. Could you talk a little bit about Wuhan's experience with that sort of disaster and why 1931 is the the year of the flood that you, you spend, you know, the book exploring. Why was 1931 so Different in terms of its human impact
1: Yes yeah, so, I mean this, this whole region of The world has faced Flooding for a long time period of time and, but, but I mean what is flooding Flooding is a kind of In this region is a natural hydrological Fluctuation that over Human action has been Exacerbated It's kind of um, the engineering of the river By various dikes Embankments and these types of things Over the course of millennia have created the possibility for human beings to live on this very fertile kind of floodplain region. But they've also created the possibility that every once in a while, this region will suffer kind of catastrophic flooding. So China's, I mean, Hubei province, the middle and lower Yangtze region um, in general, uh, suffers from flooding throughout history. And they cope with it in various ways. What happens really is during a particular moment of history, this region is, it's kind of traditional ways of coping with these calamitous events are destroyed by often non-environmental kind of socioeconomic factors, which which lead to kind of a series of very dangerous and destructive floods, really beginning, I mean, 1788 would be a, a big one, so, but then picking up during the 19th century, uh, you have this kind of sequence of kind of very, very destructive floods. And that's really kind of marking the deterioration of the Qing dynasty's capacity to uh, firstly control rivers through engineering, and secondly, ameliorate the consequences of flooding through providing uh, relief. And then what you have is this continues into the 20th century. uh, You kind of have low-level flooding Various years, building up to 1931, and then 1931, you have this huge flood. That it's not just in the Yangtze River; it's all throughout China that year, all the way from kind of Heilongjiang down to the, the Pearl River, all from Sichuan to, to, to the coast. It's it's a, a massive, massive flood that happens that year, but it happens to culminate at the same time that China is incredibly vulnerable because of the various wars and economic deterioration that's happened during the first half of the 20th century. So in 1931, you have this, this flood that, that affects something like 50 million people. It's, it's, the, it's the size of England and half of Scotland in one of the most populous regions in the world. It affects 50 million people, and of that, possibly more than 2 million people die, the vast majority from famine and disease that comes in the aftermath of the disaster.
0: You know many of the historical stories told about modern China focus on calamity and the way that it affects the human population. But I thought one of the fascinating things about your book was that it it talks in detail about how f- flooding is disastrous from perhaps a human perspective, but actually from the natural world it can be very beneficial.
1: yeah, so I mean this is this is based on my sort of amateurish reading of the ecological literature about flooding, which I wanted to do. I mean, obviously, I consider myself an environmental historian, so I wanted to read that. But the more I read that, the more I realized that actually for decades many ecologists have kind of disputed this this notion that flooding is this kind of catastrophically destructive of, of um, event and instead they think about it as a process that's actually integral to the, the maintenance of the the, the ecosystem in, in certain river systems it contributes to kind of this this flow of nutrients between these kind of terrestrial riparian and river ecosystems it distributes species throughout river valleys it, it it positively creates more biodiversity. So one of the reasons why the, the moment of the first human settlement of the Anza region, it was, it's been described as like, by paleo, paleoecologists as the Amazon of the East, this a hugely hmm. biodiverse, rich environment. And that is largely down to the fact that you have this kind of periodic fluctuation in, in river rising and falling that, that we interpret from a human perspective as flooding. So that's kind of one aspect I wanted to look at. So the ecological literature tells us that. But I wanted to answer the question, well, what does that mean for somebody who's studying the kind of social history of flooding? Mm. And I thought about kind of two major kind of, there's kind of several ways i kind of engage with this idea, but two of the kind of major ways are the fact that we need to start thinking about flooding, not necessarily as something aberrant, but something that actually was part of people's lives in this region for, th- for thousands of years. In fact, kind of the kind of wet rice agriculture that develops there, you can see as being an offshoot of the flood regime. So it's mm-hmm. kind of it built into people's lives. People have ways of coping with this. I, I describe this in the book as wetland culture, right? So people have ways of coping with this environment that isn't necessarily always dry land. They have ways of living uh, with flooding. And the second way I engage with it is, is more thinking about in terms of disaster studies. How do we account for this kind of flood pulse concept when we're thinking about disaster studies? And one of the conclusions I drew is that a lot of studies of disasters, floods and droughts and other things, when they're looking particularly at things like the, the concomitant famines and diseases, they tend to still fixate on the notion of a flood as a destructive event. Mm. kind of old-fashioned eco- ecological way of thinking about it. So they, they look at what crops are destroyed, uh, what other assets are destroyed by a flood. But actually, lots of the things that damaged people in 1931 and in other disasters were these ecologically generative effects of flooding. They mm. were the fact that these floods caused this, this outburst of, of dangerous life, these mosquitoes, these schistosomiasis co- like carrying snails, all of these different forms of life that flourished
0: had terrible consequences for the human population. And I notice, certainly early on in the book, you don't comment on the death toll, and that's one of those things. Isn't it? As it? you say in studies of disaster in China, very often, the thing that people fixate on is you know quantifying the number of people who, who died. It was that a deliberate decision to not foreground that aspect of the story. Yes and no. I would be lying if I said that the kind of
1: spectacular death toll from 1931 wasn't one of the initial reasons why I found it an interesting thing to study. Mm. I I was kind of amazed at the fact that millions of people could die. In fact, I was incensed that millions of people could die and just be forgotten from history. So Mm. I wouldn't say the death toll doesn't matter to me. I, I would say that we have no idea how many people died during the flood Mm. I mean I think probably I, I, my best guess, I do have an appendix on this and my best guess is in, in excess of 2 million, that's best based on the kind of contemporary estimates which were themselves extremely flawed in many different ways so partly I didn't fixate up, upon it because we just don't know partly also because I have a problem with working out kind of death tolls in general based upon my reading of people like Cormac O'Grada who's Written very interesting stuff about this. So, take for example, if you're working out the death toll from a flood, where like 1931 flood, lots of people died of malaria, you can actually catch some types of malaria in utero. An unborn child can catch malaria during a flood and then die of it later when it's born after the flood. Does that cat, does that child count in the death toll? Mm. So, in fact, kind of the very kind of methodology of making a death toll turns a disaster into an event, which is something that people in disaster studies have been trying to argue against for a long time. You see disasters as processes, not as events. So death tolls are problematic, but at the same time, they are also like what the public is interested in when they, when they study disasters. I mean, the 1931 flood is on all these kind of internet lists of the top deadliest disasters of all time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you have to, to a certain extent, acquiesce to that to that
0: desire and the the, the public re, the public interest. I, I thought it was interesting you talked about how this was a sort of forgotten disaster, and certainly when you're in Wuhan itself, visitors who stroll along that famous Bund will come across a memorial to a flood, but it's not the 1931 flood; it's the 1954. Flood, and it's a strange memorial in some ways, or at least I found it strange because it seems almost celebratory. It has quotes Mao's poem "Swimming" about his swim, one of his swims in the Yangtze, and it sort of talks about the ways in which people overcame nature in in that in that flood in nineteen fifty four. But so, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what happened in fifty four and the way in which that flood was kind of co-opted was part of the CCP narrative.
1: Yeah, sure. So I've, I write a little bit about this in the book, and I've got another article in which I consider the 1954 flood much more closely. And you you notice this, this memorial, and you say it seemed almost like a celebration. They know almost about it. It is a <laughs> celebration of what they did, because the, the narrative of the 1954 flood at the time, and that memorial was built in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. But yep. at, at the time, the, the, the narrative was one of having conquered nature. One of the kind of propaganda tomes that was published at the time is entitled, The Party Leads the People to Victory Over the Flood. Mm. And so it was seen as this, firstly, a major conquering of nature, and it was secondly seen as a major index of the superiority of communist governance over the Guomindang governance. because. Within the contemporary literature, there's continual comparisons to the 1931 flood. So, in that propaganda book I just mentioned, you have all these photographs of flooded streets in 1931, next to these in, in Wuhan, next to these dry streets in 1954. You have these accounts of kind of typical speaking bitterness narratives of people who were miserable in 1931 but are grateful to the party in 1954. Mm. So, I. So I did my own research in this, and I found perhaps unsurprisingly a lot of this propaganda is totally false, and it's false in a couple of interesting ways so firstly, this notion that the Communist Party managed to prevent major suffering through kind of this this uh, superior governance is totally false because I went into the archives and I found the original disaster report and Hidden within there, it admits that 150,000 people died in one province, in Hubei province alone during the flood. Almost 149,000 people died as a result of this flood. And these people have literally been written out of history. Mm. Uh, So in the 1990s, I think they they released statistics and they said 30,000 people died. It's almost five times as many, right? And what's even more damning is that if you look at where these people died, they died, they were mostly refugees from an area that was deliberately flooded by the Communist Party. So they built these flood diversions in the early 1950s and then they opened them up and they flooded these areas. And it was these areas in central Hubei uh, where the majority of people died. So it's kind of this victory over the flood that's celebrated in this monument is problematic for this reason obviously, all these people dying. It's also, so part of this kind of victory over the flood is based upon the fact that they managed to save Wuhan from flooding. And, of course, Wuhan being a kind of industrial uh, and economic centre, it was vitally important to prevent it. And the the language at the time was, of course, the the tremendous self-sacrifice of the countryside people, as if Mm -hmm. when somebody opens a floodgate on top of you, you've sacrificed yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, this is also based upon, if not necessarily a lie, a kind of distortion of the truth. Because whilst Hankou and Wuchang were not flooded, the two of the historic cities that make up Wuhan were not flooded, the city of Hanyang, the, the third city in Wuhan, in, in Wuhan, was. And I've spent time kind of interviewing people who lived for months as refugees in the city uh, as a result of the one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-four flood, but just contemporary um, propaganda accounts just totally ignore Hanyang uh, because, of course, it doesn't fit into their convenient narrative. So, yeah, the one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-four flood was by no
0: means the triumph that it is claimed to be today. And in terms of the contemporary historiography now, has there been any any change? Is it something that is written about? In today's China, I read all the Chinese stuff I could find about the 1954 flood, which was minimal before I wrote yeah. the
1: article. I haven't, I haven't gone back and revisited it since I published the article. But my strong suspicion would be no. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for good reason. I mean, we can't hold this against our Chinese academic colleagues. They just, don't, they can't publish that kind of stuff. No. I mean, did have conversations with numerous people. During that, who would, of hushed tones, they would say yes, something terrible happened that year. But also, it's interesting to note, and this is something we need to think about when we're kind of kind of looking at these periods. The propaganda did, to a certain extent, work. So Mm. uh, even these people, the people I interviewed who were refugees, many of them think that the government did a great job, and in fact you can argue in some respects in in Wuhan, they did do a pretty good job. They they said that whilst being refugees, they had more food than they did when they were ordinarily living their lives. And they Mm. remember the period after the flood as this kind of period of plenty because not only was the government giving them food, but there's all these fish everywhere that you can go and get out of (laughs) all these puddles. And they had a great time. Obviously, that they didn't know what was going on in the countryside because the flow of information was uh, so distorted. So Mm. to a certain extent... Unless I had found that document in, in the archives, unless I'd found that document which kind of detailed the amount of people who died, I probably would have written something relatively positive about mm. the 1954 flood. Of course, I had interviewed people in the countryside who had much worse times and they were kind of starving during the flood, and these, these, types of, these types of things. But it, it really goes to show kind of how effective propaganda and the control of information can be over the study of history.
0: Mm. it's interesting on that obelisk that stands on the bund that the one of the inscriptions is from Mao's you know in a way you couldn't think of anything more tone deaf than having a poem which is called swimming <laughs> on a flood memorial uh, and I was thinking about that in the context of you talking about the CCP liking these narratives that you know not just in terms of the fifty-four flood, but of conquering nature. And of course, one of the things that he mentions in that poem is the idea of building a great dam upstream to control the flow. Which, I mean, he wouldn't see completed, but but you know was subsequently completed, the Three Gorges Dam. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the effect that that has had on Wuhan, as we speak at the the beginning of July, the city is currently, at least parts of it, underwater, and there are a a number of people very worried about the uh, the rainfall this year. What effect did the construction of the Three Gorges Dam have, and and how successful has it been, or not as the case may be, in controlling um, the flooding further downstream? Yeah, sure. So if I may, I, I want to kind of go back to something you said at the beginning of that, which was
1: that this this, this notion of human beings having to control nature was, a, was obviously was a major part of kind of the Maoist environmental policy. It was also a major part of environmental policy for pretty much every regime that governed the Anza River from the late 19th century until, up until kind of the post mao era when they built post Dung era when they built the dam. Mm. So it's, it's an, something I'm always keen to point out is the fact that people say, or often point out that Yat that Sen was the person who uh, kind mm. of designed the dam, but kind of British engineers also said a dam would be a good idea uh, in the early 20th century, as did American mm. a, a consultant engineers, as did the Japanese, as did the Guomindang later, as did the, to kind of the Maoist regime, and as did the regimes it later in the 20th century. So, I, I, I always kind of just for point of accuracy, I always want to kind of push back against this notion this is necessarily just this kind of uh, this expression of kind of totalitarian communist mm. dominance over, over the environment, which it was, but just to kind of remind people that this falls within a pattern that's found throughout kind of high modernist. Thinking mm-hmm. about the environment. Sorry, so that's the first little uh, little part. So coming back to what you're saying about what effect has it had on Wuhan? And so you mentioned the flooding. Well, of course, Wuhan hasn't stopped flooding since they built the dam. As you say, as we speak at the moment in July, there are kind of floods in this region. Of course, we do have to realise that there are different types of floods. So waterlogging, localized flooding from lakes or uh, these kind of ghost lakes that used to exist in this region is one type of flooding. These kind of major floods, the ones that happened in 1931, the ones that happened in 1945, sorry, 54, are the kind of major river floods that break through the dikes that run along the side of the, the river and kind of flood huge, vast territories. We haven't had these kind of major catastrophic floods. The last big one was in 1998. So yeah we still have flooding but it goes to show that the dam was never a solution for the entire problem of flooding it was never going to tackle flooding although it may have potentially uh, tackled the this kind of major river flooding that mm. that we see hopefully i mean of course the the terrifying prospect is the fact that if the dam failed then you would have kind of a worse kind of flood than the region had ever experienced. Uh, Mm. You have this kind of engineered disaster. Of course, dams have collapsed in China before Mm. 1975, being a very famous example. Mm. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, hopefully that's happened. I don't think there are any indications that that is imminently going to happen anytime anytime soon, so we, we certainly hope that that won't happen. In terms of the kind of broader effect... This goes back to what I was saying about this kind of flood pulse concept and this notion of essentially thinking of flooding as this aberrant phenomenon happening within a hydrological system. Hmm. Of course, if we start to think about flooding as actually something that's beneficial, then we see for most of the ecosystem, what is disastrous isn't a flood. It's the human attempt to control the flood. Hmm. And the, as the largest dam in the world, the Three Gorges Dam is kind of catastrophic ecological effect in in disrupting the the kind of hydrological regime. Now, we might say, okay, so it does have these catastrophic ecological effects, but we have to think about the kind of human well-being, human development. We've already mentioned it's not a kind of panacea for the problem of flooding. We also have to think about the extent to which the economy is still built or was until recently still embedded within the ecology of this region. Think about Mm -hmm. something like fishing. So the, just recently the, 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 the Chinese government have had to implement a 10-year fishing ban throughout much of the Anza ri- River. Of course this isn't just caused by the dam it's caused by, you know, various other kind of things that are happening, the pollution, the industrialization of mm. fishing these types of things. But certainly the dam played a role in disrupting the kind of, the kind of ecology of, of fisheries. So there's, there's numerous uh, ways in which it's kind of uh, badly affected the environment, and these will have bad knock-on effects upon the humans living in that region.
0: Mm. We'll change gears slightly and, and return <laughs> to, well, we mentioned Mao Zedonga a few times already, and he's a figure that leans quite large in the historiography of the city. There is a small museum at the house where he lived in in 1927, which itemises the number of times he visited and. Also the number of times that he swam in the river there. And of course there is the most famous of those, which which is memorialized not far away from the obelisk we were talking about, the date of his swim, just before the Cultural Revolution, in 1966. And I was in Wuhan on the trail of Deng Xiaoping, and you know, everywhere I turned almost there were <laughs> reminders of of Mao. How central is is his story and and those visits to the kind of contemporary history of of Wuhan so i mean of course he's remains incredibly popular with with, with
1: lots of people in, in the in the city, and his presence is certainly dominant in in certain regions he's still i think there's probably more kind of mao statues and stuff like that that than you would find in some other regions of china still surviving of course. It depends if you're thinking about the history or the historical memory, because yeah. in the actual the actual history, Mao has a, a somewhat ambiguous position within a lot of the things that happen in Wuhan. So, for example, in the 1920s, it's not Mao who's leading these kind of big nationalist, uh, sorry, communist uprisings, these trade union uprisings against the kind of British concession in these regions. It, it's it's Mao's rival, Li Li San. So. Mm he actually wasn't as involved and central to the kind of stuff that's happening in the 1920s, even as you suggest this kind of museums memorializing that kind of stuff that was happening back mm-hmm. then. Of course, being from Hunan, he's a different province, but it's the neighboring province. I think there's a certain affiliation in that whole region with kind of the, with, with Mao and his, his kind of legacy much more so than other leaders. So, for example, Dong Xiaoping, wouldn't be as popular as Mao in that particular region, and mm. he's obviously, as you suggest, he 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 seemed to choose the the city to have these kind of um, little pieces of political theatre, like his swim in nineteen sixty six, where he's trying to kind of um, prove his virility, right? So he's been mm. he's been his power had declined, and then he's trying to kind of prove that he still is a strong leader and physical. Physical fitness, of course, having been a, a big part of the kind of mm. his mentality since he's he's writing in very early on about kind of physical education and all these types of things. Mm. Interestingly, actually, recently one of my students um, here in, in Durham University, she was writing a dissertation. It's Emma Chalmers, just to give her the name the name check. She was writing a dissertation about kind of British representations of the Maoist period. And so she found out that during this, during this era, lots of foreign newspapers were actually saying that just prior to 1966 that, that Mao was dead. So right. they, they believed that he hadn't been seen in public for a long time. So there were all these rumors circulating outside China that he'd actually died. So I, I wondered, I mean, it's t- pure speculation whether or not swimming in the ante might also have been a kind of a way of proving that he
0: was uh, still fighting fit. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, the, his his swimming records in the river are something to behold. I think the the record was 1961. So uh, in 1961, apparently, he managed 12 kilometres in just 40 minutes. <laughs> in 1966, he was a bit slower, so he was in for an hour and five minutes and managed 15 kilometres in that time, according to the official history in the museum in, in Wuhan. And there's been lots of, you know, justifiably... Um, satirical commentary on that
1: so the other kind of conspiracy theory I, I don't know if there's any truth in this is is that if you look at the the kind of video and photographs he, that were taken when he was doing this swim, he's suspiciously high in the water and some people have suggested that there <laughs> are kind of frog men underneath him holding his legs um, <laughs> but yeah no, they still they still have these kind of annual swims every year to commemorate um this well, it's to commemorate this event, and also as kind of a, a summer uh, display of um, fitness for the for the local population. I did think about taking part one year, but I decided against it, um, having seen kind of quite how polluted the river is, and not necessarily wanting to, to swim in it for a long period
0: of time. And it's quite a you know, it's a it's a wide section of the of the river, isn't it? And and some pretty strong currents.
1: Yeah, I mean, people do still drown swimming in the river uh, quite often. That was one of the other reasons why I decided not to <laughs> take part. I just had a child and I thought it, it would be rather irresponsible to to try and swim across this kind of... And, and there, there's also, of course, not during this event, there are also still a lot of boats um, that go, up, go along there. So it can be quite dangerous swimming in the river.
0: Mm, I mean, one of the reasons you might be tempted having visited in the summer last year myself, is because Wuhan is just so hot in the summer and and is famously known as one of the either three or four furnaces, depending on on how you define them. In China, the sort of really hot cities along with Chongqing and and Nanjing. And I know you've been working on this subject, how heat has been sort of managed and, and the impact it's had. And I thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about history and and it's something that we you know as I've traveled through China in the summer I've often wondered about the ways in which systems are managing that have altered urban spaces and just life generally in China so could you talk a little bit about your research in that area and and what form that's going to take?
1: Sure yeah so I've already started obviously at the moment This research is suspended as much research throughout the world is but Mm. um so it's it's based upon both kind of archival and documentary research but but largely on oral histories looking at how the city of Wuhan has coped with the problem or how the population of the city of Wuhan have coped with living in this extreme temperature from roughly the 1920s till about the present day and there's um a couple of reasons that I really interested in in looking at this. The first is, in environmental history, I think this is a very much understudied aspect. You think about how many how much attention we pay to other aspects of climate and meteorology, but but yet, we kind of write about histories of places as if they're thermally neutral, as mm. if the kind of punishing heat that can literally drive you from your field into the shade uh, mm. or kind of kill you. As if, mm. as if this heat isn't a consideration that we even need to think about, I think it's probably partly due to the kind of temperate bias of the people who write history, right? They, mm. they often have to contend with this kind of sometimes killer heat. So I'm interested in it as an environmental phenomenon. I'm also interested in it as a phenomenon of environmental change because mm. the urban areas throughout the world have been getting hotter uh, particularly over the last century, due to this urban heat island effect, so mm-hmm. urban urban areas generally tend to be hotter than their rural hinterlands. But some of the kind of changes to urban morphology and technology that have happened over the course of the last century have r- really had dramatic effects, like the covering of green spaces with concrete, the overuse of mm-hmm. air conditioning, all mm-hmm. of these kind of factors. Many of them, which incidentally in China you can trace back to the era of Deng Xiaoping, that you person who you're pursuing in your in your current project. Although, of course, many of them also predate him. So that's one aspect, is looking at this kind of actual pressing environmental problem in historical context. And the second reason I'm really interested in heat is because I think it's a very interesting prism to look at the social and political history of Wuhan and China more generally, in a way that Decenters the party from politics, of course, mm. the Communist Party has to be, has to have a role in all kind of histories because they 've been so so dominant, but I just feel like my interaction with people in China they, they aren 't always talking about these kind of campaigns about these kind of politics that we think about, even in kind of the, the social history of of these Of these periods. And when we go there as researchers and we presuppose, so what was your life like living through such and such a movement, the Great Leap Mm -hmm. Forward or Cultural Revolution, then people Mm -hmm. will give you that kind of packaged answer. But if you ask people questions such as, how did you cope with living in extreme heat when you were Mm -hmm. young, they'll tell you all these other nuances and daily aspects of their lives that don't normally come up, these kind of everyday social histories that are, in fact, incredibly political. Because Mm. the ways that people have coped with heat over time have reflected the prevailing economic, technological, and social uh, atmosphere at the time. So, to give you one example, so kind of, I guess, one of the grand narratives of of my book is the shift from a period in which, during the kind of the Maoist era, everybody would sleep outside during the summer. And this kind of collectivist ethos you know everyone was sleeping outside they would tell each other stories everyone would eat together and it's remembered very nostalgically or well, i'm sure people are forgetting all the mosquitoes and <laughs> the kind of uh, discomforts there were yeah. and then you have this process whereby gradually you have fans and then and then air conditioning kind of helps to kind of precipitate this privatization of of Mm. space, and this gradual withdrawal of people into their own apartments. So I think it's kind of uh, an interesting metaphor to think about the kind of broader changes that have happened in China
0: and the the changing social and economic dynamics. And and how recently, obviously now, you know, in Chinese cities, their conditioning is ubiquitous and somewhere like Wuhan feels absolutely essential uh, to living there during the summer months. But how recent a phenomenon is that, you know, being being something that ordinary people had access to. So kind of you have these stages
1: that happen throughout the 1980s and 1990s. 1980s is more, I mean, people had had them before, but electronic fans come in a mm. lot more and more. People have very many, many electronic fans. And refrigeration, home refrigeration, is a massive, mm. massive change in the way that people live their lives. Of course, that has, because of the, the gendered burden of... Shopping and, these, and food preparation, this has a massive impact upon the way that people are able women in particular, are able to participate in the workforce and these types of things. So we have all these changes that happen in the '80s. Air conditioning more I mean some of it, I believe, starts to happen in the, the 1980s. If you have kind of the ability to buy imported, generally Japanese goods in yeah. the 1980s, but mostly in the 1990s, it takes off. And becomes one of the kind of major things and now of course an air conditioning unit is considered one of the major like if you're getting married in china yeah. and you have to kind of kit out the entire house generally in, in wuhan this would be the job of the groom's family then providing an air conditioning unit it, as part of the house is is kind of very standard basic thing you have to do nowadays it's often in, involves also kind of saying that you have a car for for the wealthier mm. people. But mm. certainly in the 1990s and early 2000s, an air conditioning unit was kind of the base level for kind of providing people with a comfortable domestic setting
0: before marriage. And that's a useful segue, that transformation. You're talking about where in the 80s and 90s, those sorts of consumer goods become more accessible to the average Chinese person, to the sensible focus of... This podcast, which is Deng's Southern tour, in Wuhan, in a way is a bit of a an anomaly in his tour because he only stops there for an hour he's um, on his private train from Beijing and arrives there at about ten thirty in the morning and stops for about an hour and has a chat with the local party secretaries and then moves on on his on his way to Shenzhen i mean I know you've uh, been undertaking oral history in the city, and I wonder what the people who remember that era what their memories and thoughts on Deng Xiaoping are perhaps versus Mao who as we've said is, is so central in, in the city's memory
1: yeah I mean this this wasn't a, explicitly a question that I had asked so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to uh, claim that I knew kind of a representative amount about how people think about these two leaders. But I would say something that has come up in my research that some people have mentioned is kind of some people dislike Deng Xiaoping intensely in the city. And this is largely, if you think about the kind of the industrial heritage of the city. So during the Maoist era, this becomes one of the kind of major industry, well, it had been an industrial center before the Maoist era. It kind of is rehabilitated and the industrial sector grows during the Maoist era. And of course, urban industrial workers were a relatively privileged class mm-hmm. during the Maoist era, and com- certainly in comparison to people living in rural areas. And so you have all these people who have been, by relative standards, doing fairly well. A lot of them bought into the kind of collectivist ethos that I was just describing in terms of they, they were poor, I mean, one thing people will say in the city all the time is, we at that time we were poor, but we were all poor together. And they will also say we're all hot, but we're all <laughs> hot together, about sleeping outside. So... I mean, no doubt there's a huge amount of nostalgia about this. But mm-hmm. then what happens in the 1980s is you have this bifurcation. You do have this kind of massive growth in the capacity of people to access consumer goods, as you were just mentioning, this kind of this economic transformation. People begin to get um, luxury goods, not just mm-hmm. refrigerators and fans, but things like televisions and the kind of more accessible types of food, these types of things. However, at the same time, job security... Is, is challenged by these economic reforms, particularly the kind of closure of the kind of state enterprises, which, which mean that the, this kind of relatively privileged position of the urban worker is challenged somewhat. And many people lost their jobs. I know mm-hmm. some of the older people who I've interviewed lost their jobs during this particular period. And so that's why they don't like Dong Xiaoping. They associate him with factory closures and, and these types of things. Yeah, sorry,
0: Ken. No, I just—it's an interesting point in a way. I, I mentioned Wuhan being an anomaly in his tour, and part of the reason, as you say, that it's anomalous is because the other destinations were coastal special economic zones on the whole, and the transformation that that took place had taken place and took place after ninety-two has meant that he is generally thought of incredibly positive. I mean, it's very hard in someone like Shenzhen to find somebody saying a bad word about, about dung.
1: Uh, that's
0: because um, Shenzhen has so few old people. Well, that's true, of course. And there are very few people who are, who are from Shenzhen, you know, originally still living there, of course. It's a city of, of people that, that people have migrated to over, over, over the years. But I thought it was interesting, you know, the idea of the identity of the city. Now, I think, obviously, to come back to where we started in a way, which is the modern international perception of of Wuhan. but i wonder whether you could talk a little bit about the domestic identity and perception of the city outside of the coronavirus and what you know what, what is its you know it used to be an industrial city previous to that the late 19th century we talked about its rich international history what is it today to modern chinese people do you think Certainly, mm. as I'm sure you're aware, they have this kind of um,
1: geographic cultural essentialism in China, so mm. where like people from this area are like this. Um, yeah. And so the the reputation of people from... would w- w- be, I guess, being somewhat hard-nosed. Hubei people are the jiu right? They're the, the, the mm. nine-headed birds. Kind of is this re- reputation for being hard-nosed, loud. <laughs> Part of the reputation is to a certain extent true it's a pretty loud place, but yeah, I guess it's it's all it's also I think there is a certain amount of uh superiority felt by certain people from other regions but, I mean like kind of because Wuhan is a big city, but uh, people from maybe Beijing or Shanghai would consider it, it within their parlance a less developed city than there so people mm-hmm. there's there's a kind of tendency to somewhat discriminate against Wuhan as kind of, I guess, being less developed and also a little bit brash uh, and these types of stereotypes that they would have. And I would say, I mean, uh, we're trying to uh, kind of move away from the topic of coronavirus, but I, I think this has also played into this regional discrimination mm-hmm. against people from from this region during, during coronavirus, uh, the kind of general regional animosities between various places. Interestingly, however some of the first places that opened up and would recognise the, the health code system of people from Wuhan were precisely the people down in the south in Shenzhen and mm. all of these areas because they rely still steadily on the flows of migrant labour from places like Hubei. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it, I think people are very proud of being from, from Wuhan, um, uh, and rightly because they have a very Im- important history. And I think sometimes people from other regions of China – don't appreciate quite how important they were historically.
0: And, of course, one of the nicknames for the city, which seems to date back to the early 20th century, is that it was the Chicago of China. Do you think that's still a, an analogy that makes sense today? Well, I mean, the Chicago of China was really... I think both Wuhan and Chicago have
1: changed significantly since since yeah. then. So, I mean, it was... The wharf culture, the trading culture, and the industry that happened there, so it was it was this this major interchange of goods that you could that were going through the cities Wuhan was known as the gateway to nine provinces right so it was yes tra- transportation and trading hub that I was mentioning before, so the kind of the 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 wharf culture people sh- shipping stuff um, and all these kind of um what people are called coolies right who would be shipping mm-hmm. be moving yeah. these things. I mean, there is still a huge amount of trade that goes on, but I do think a lot of that shifted internationally and and, and coastally. So it it, it isn't really as central to trade, partly because trade has internationalized more Mm. than it was Mm -hmm. Obviously, already international then, but it's more international now. I also, I think quite a lot of it has also to do with the kind of trade, changing nature of transportation. Obviously, a lot of stuff is still transported along rivers, but we Mm. have alternative means of transporting goods nowadays. I often speculate, um, I'd have to look at kind of the statistics to see if I'm right on this, that one of the major kind of as one of the major events that, that really led to the diminishing status of Wuhan was the construction of the first bridge across the Anza River, mm. which is ironic because it's massively celebrated as this kind of grand achievement for the city. People are very proud of it. Yes. But it was this construction of uh, a, a bridge across the, the, the river that, that turned Wuhan from being somewhere you had to stop yeah. and move all your stuff to being somewhere you could just travel through. So it was the construction of this bridge across the river, for example, that allowed Dong Xiaoping to only stay an hour in Wuhan when he's traveling mm. from the north to the south. If he'd have gone before the 1950s, he'd have had to stop, spend the day there getting across the river and then getting on a train the other, on the other side. So mm. Wuhan's kind of integration and the integration of the kind of railways and transportation systems have kind of removed its importance as a central hub within transportation, and turned it more into somewhere you just travel through
0: getting somewhere else. And that's the fascinating part of its history. It was celebrated, it was completed in 1957, I think, and you know was, was celebrated, as you say, as a great engineering achievement and is still one of the icons of the city if you go and visit. Mm. Yeah, I, I
1: interviewed some of the people who built it last summer, actually. Uh, they've built, got workers to come in from throughout throughout china to kind of participate in this construction project and many of them still live in the same neighborhood that they did that was built for them when they were building the bridge presumably they they built during the winter rather than the summer
0: i think they built um, I, I, I would have to check that but i'm pretty sure they built all year round did they yeah yeah and it's quite common wasn't it to have those big engineering products uh, projects where you would get workers from sort of all over china to come and contribute to this great to the communist engineering feat, yeah, uh, obviously much more so later in the in the Maoist period.
1: That Koval Maskins has just written a very interesting book about.
0: Mm. Mm. Great, and when will we see your book about heat?
1: <laughs> well, let's wait and see when I'm able to resume doing my re- my research again. Yes, I've obviously done initial research. I still have quite a lot to do. I should say this is part of a kind of broader project I've got with some some colleagues. At, and that kind of the funding from the Singaporean government and so we're working with people in Singapore we've got colleagues Mm. in Hong Kong colleagues in New Delhi all kind of looking at this problem of urban heat so Mm. there will be hopefully articles and possibly comparative articles between places like New Delhi and Wuhan coming out and then eventually the book in
0: a couple of years. Fantastic Well, well we'll look forward to that and thanks for joining us today Chris. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Southern Tour podcast. Next time on the Southern Tour We welcome Duan Du, author of The Shenzhen Experiment, to discuss the myths and realities and the remarkable rise of China's so-called instant city.